Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to another session from the opening day of Connected Educator Month. This has been an amazing day, and we have an amazing speaker to help us finish the day. Uh, if you read the message from Karen Cater, you should know that she's been incredibly supportive and promoting of this event and activity, and I think it's a milestone and greatly appreciate it. Uh, if you haven't signed up for the Connected Educator Month newsletter, please do so. It's at connecteducatormonth.org. You can actually click on that link on the screen. Uh, there are once, even twice a day, emails about what's going on. And there is so much going on. Uh, it's just exciting and fascinating. So hopefully, you'll find some good things for you. If you're tweeting, the hashtag is CE12. So Chris, really thrilled that you would do this. Chris is the principal of Science Leadership Academy and has become a significant voice in the discussions around all kinds of things related to education and technology and leadership. Chris, we're delighted to have you here for what's our, our final keynote of the day. You're following Deborah Meyer, who sang your praises. and. Uh, we really appreciate your being here. So I'll let you take it over, and then I'll come back when it's time for Q&A. Wonderful. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm actually going to, Steve, I hope you're going to stick around, because uh, we're going uh, to mix this up a little bit. I think one of the um, really awesome things about being connected is that um, we can talk to one another, and uh, there's Lots of opportunities for anybody who would like to listen to me talk to do that. Yay, Steve! But um, I want to harness the energy and, and the, um, the goodwill of the room and the fact that there are so many folks here who are giving up their time and, and, and listen as much as talk. So, um, you know, I want to talk about this is fun for me because um, what I would like us to talk about as a group is what it means to be a connected educator. And I've got some thoughts on that. I've got some ideas on that. For me, uh, it's funny, Steve, after you and I talked about this briefly, I really struggled with it because um, I've been on the Internet since, I think, 1990, and I was in college. And the reason that I got on the Internet, and my first, um, my first email account was actually a Cleveland Freenet account, which if there's anybody who's been around for as long as I have on the net, is dating themselves uh, pretty severely by, or by admitting that. Um, and the reason I got online was um, I'm an ultimate Frisbee player, as a lot of people know, or a retired one. And uh, there was a Usenet group, Rexport Disc, where people were talking about ultimate and, and discussing tournaments and strategies and what have you. And I had to be a part of it. I couldn't stomach the idea that people were talking about Ultimate Frisbee um, somewhere and I wasn't part of it. Um, right, CompuServe was the other big account around there. I also had a Prodigy account um, and what have you. And, uh, and so I started reading the Usenet groups. And so from my first introductions into the Internet, now, 20 plus years ago, it was always toward a purpose of um, learning more, doing, you know, investing myself in these incredibly uh, passionate things that I always think that I was passionate about. Um, 
so for me, the idea that we would get together in any spaces and talk about the things that we are passionate about just always made sense to me. Um, and then we've seen with the growth of Twitter, you know, and then so I had my first web page with, I'm embarrassed to admit, animated GIFs um, back in, you know, 93, 94, and I was writing, posting journal entries of things I was thinking about back then, um, sort of proto-blogging. And then, you know, as teachers began to blog and what have you, um, really started to, to grab onto that. Um, so this has always been part of my practice. And I, it's hard for me to separate out being a teacher from being online and being connected. Um, I've also been incredibly lucky in that all of the schools I've worked in have been connected schools, and I don't necessarily just mean online, but I mean in that I've never worked in a school where the concept was close the door to your classroom and teach. Um, so as I was thinking about sort of what's a good working definition for being a connected educator, um, you know, I thought about number one, what do I do? So what do I get out of it? Number one, um, it's my virtual water cooler, right? I mean, and let's be clear that there's something really wonderful about that and the idea that we can have this place that we can sort of let go of the day or just sort of be there for one another. Um, I was at, uh, I was co-hosting uh, 140 EDU for the last two days and Jeff Culver, the uh, founder of the whole 140 movement, conference movement, was talking about his own personal story and he talks about how it is um, the little things that matter so much in a lot of these social interactions, the idea that you know, he wakes up in the morning and says, good morning to everyone, and then takes the time to reply, good morning to anybody who says it back to him. And these wonderful sort of small moments of social interaction uh, are a part of it. And I think that's a big part of it for teachers, too. I think that teaching can be... I'm going to open this window so I'm not dying of the heat in here. Hang on. I forgot how heavy Manhattan windows are. Um, Teaching can be a really isolating job, and the idea that you never feel alone when you're on Twitter is a nice thing. So I think it gives us our virtual water cooler. I don't think we should um, undersell that. Secondly, I think, you know, and related to that, uh, Seth Godin has written a lot about finding your tribe. And I think that being a connected educator has allowed many of us to find our tribe. Um, and I think when we can feel frustrated, if we can um, feel isolated where we are, or we feel like our ideas aren't always sort of easy to implement where we are, the idea that there's a whole community struggling with those things and pushing forward can be a powerful thing. And I think even the notion of a connected educator, there are many different sort of subgroups of those educators, right, from the folks who spend a lot of their time on EdChat, the folks who spend their time in InChat, the folks who spend their time in a million different places. We've seen so many um, places where that can be uh, True. And speaking of being a connected educator, I just made the mistake of leaving a Facebook window up and now my students are chatting me. Sorry about that. So I did let my students know that I'll be back in a minute. Um, that's really powerful. I think the other thing that obviously so many of us have gravitated to is the notion of anywhere, anytime learning. And the idea that being connected, not just through Twitter or social networks, but being connected into the blogosphere, being connected into all of this stuff has meant that we have access to um, more information and so many folks who are curating this information and so many ways to have experts at our fingertips at, at all the time. Um, and yes, John, actually, I still use Telnet, believe it or not. Um, I think that's powerful. And again, I think it is, again, that, that incredibly powerful thing of losing the isolation of the classroom. I think all of those things help us to build the notion of the, uh, the connected educator. 
And um, beyond that, I think it's amazing when we remember this happened uh, everywhere. You know, how many, just out of curiosity, and you can just, you know, in the chat room or using the little hand thing, how many people have been following um, the experiences that Andy Carvin has been going through as sort of the connected journalist with the experiences of um, Arab Spring and what have you and everything that he's been doing? Steve has. Anybody else who's been following, anybody else follow Andy Carvin on Twitter or be aware of it? Awesome. I think um, for those folks who don't know who Andy Carvin is, um, the very quick version of this is he was uh, working at NPR. He is working at NPR. Um, he had a background in what was going on in the Middle East. He was following some folks in the Middle East um, just on Twitter because of his connections that he had made to his life. And then when uh, I believe Tunisia was the first one that he sort of keyed into, um, when the gentleman in Tunisia set himself on fire and the American media kind of um, was not quite aware of it. He started tweeting this and he started having a whole bunch of other people on Twitter who were in Tunisia starting to say, be aware of this American uh, curator was bringing this story to America and they started feeding him all kinds of more information and being his eyes to the world. and, and all of a sudden, eventually, the mainstream American media grabbed onto the story, not in small part because of the work that Andy had done. And that happened because Andy was connected and paying attention. And all of a sudden, the boundaries of his life were forever changed. And the amazing thing is, is that he became sort of the go-to person as Egypt exploded, as Libya, as all of these different places started to happen, you know, people wanted him to be involved in that. And of course, he's one person and, and couldn't do everything. Um, but it was this amazing moment where I think many of us realized um, the incredible power of these networks. Um, you know, Andy will tell you, and I think rightly so, that he does not, he sees himself as one very small piece of a much larger puzzle about what happened in uh, the Middle East this year, um, over the last you know, two years now, I guess. But he played a role, and that was incredible. And, and the role that he played on some level was educating all of us and, and forcing a story that otherwise had been neglected to the forefront or at least to um, the margins at best, or, or at worst, I guess, uh, of the American and of the Western media. That was incredible. Interestingly, that's happening in small scale in schools all over this country and for teachers all over this country. Um, we had an experience in SLA where Diana Laufenberg, um, an amazing connected educator and who's been a teacher at SLA for the last four years, connected with a school in Texas uh, during the 2008 presidential election. And each school agreed to take photographs and do interviews and posted out to, to, to Flickr and to um, some various places um, of people on election day, recording the images and voices of voters um, on what was a you know, historic presidential election. And for this rural Texas town, the stories and the images of, of how people felt about that election were completely different than what in Philadelphia which is, you know, 90-something percent Democratic, largely African-American, 
um, and the stories and the images and, and, and the feelings and emotions of what people felt that they were completely different. And for us as educators, but also more importantly for students, to have their worlds exposed that way was an amazing moment and a powerful moment and a profound moment and one that actually the students talked about for a really long time. So um, I want to honor the fact that there's 43 of us in the room and that we've all had various experiences with being a connected educator. And so I want to ask the question, um, how has being connected, uh, oh, I don't know what sentence they had. I could look at our unit plans and find it, I'm sure. Um, if people could just give sort of nuggets, and again, either in the, you know, the chat room is probably easiest where we can interact with some of this stuff, or grab a mic and what have you. Um, how has being a connected educator changed you, changed you, changed your practice, changed uh, your experiences as a teacher? And it looks like Steve is setting up for me. Thank you for being here, Steve. Um, ways that people can talk about it. So if someone wants to be the first person, just when you write there, put your name so we know who you are. Um, and that would be awesome. Wonderful. Being a better sharer and collaborator. It's inspired uh, Holly to be better and to keep learning. Uh, for Lisa, understanding that she's no longer uh, the know-it-all. For Steve, um, again, you guys can read all of these. Uh, a cognitive revolution, it's an amazing term, right? It's a wonderful, wonderful term. Um, Robin, do you have a mic where you are? Does your mic work? So I can give mic privileges to everybody, which I'll do right now. And uh, if Chris asks you to take the mic, just click on the talk button at the top left and see how it does. Robin, can you click on the talk button? Is yes, that can you hear me now? Yes. So, so Robin, if you would, I want, to, I want to explore that idea that you said it has rekindled your passion for teaching and learning. How and, and why, I guess? If you can kind of unpack that statement for us, that would be awesome. Well, I think um, I've always been a strong learner. However, it's allowed me to connect with people who push my thinking and to find other people that were similar to myself and the research to back up what I was thinking. Awesome. Um, thank you. I, I think that a lot of, I, I think a larger conversation and perhaps maybe um, something that is worth exploring through our various networks, blogging and what have you, is why and how without, how we build that into part of our day. Because I think that you've hit on something really powerful. I think a lot of teachers um, get caught up in the grind of teaching um, and lose that passion and lose perspective or lose sight of why we did this in the first place. And, I, and your story and, and your words, um, I've heard from other people. And I don't know if that's a direct sort of correlation to sort of what Gordon talks about with this notion of tribes, but this notion that we can, one, learn more, but two, sort of rekindle that passion, I think is a really important thing. And to be reminded of our passions, I think, is a really profound way that a lot of us have used this stuff. 
Um, anybody else kind of want to give me a, a, an anecdote about a moment when um, they realized that this was happening? That would be wonderful. Karen, I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, my, I, several of us at 140 today talked about the idea. Joe Mazza, who's doing amazing stuff at home and school and Twitter and, and connection, talked about how his wife may not be thrilled that he's discovered Twitter because it now is one more thing he does. Um, and I think, Robin, it's a great question. How do we, my wife, like to joke around, she calls me 1-800-TEACHER. Is it that now, I would argue, perhaps, that more so than most professions, teachers' identities are wrapped up in being teachers. You know, my wife is a publicist. But if you say to, if you say to my wife, who are you? She won't say, I'm a publicist. But if you say to a teacher, who are you? I guarantee the overwhelming majority of them within the first one or two things they say is, I'm a teacher. Maybe I'm a mom or I'm a husband or a wife or what have you. But the second thing is, I'm a teacher. Is this the moment where many of us make ourselves one life? Where we are no, we are never not the thing we are, or you know, for me, the moment when you close your laptop, is it always that moment when now, what this has enabled us to do is to continue the kind of teaching, learning, love that we have when we need, um, or is it something that we now have to guard against with balance and what all the rest of it? I and mean, what do people think about that? Is the downside of this um, that we are now truly drinking from the fire hose, or? You know, is this a you know is this a, something that now just actually fulfills us back when we go back into our classrooms? How do people manage that? Ooh, Kim, take that idea. You're a teacher, but you're not always clear who your students are. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Is the microphone working? <laughs> yep. Okay. I, I just think that, you know, I, I used to think of myself as a teacher in a classroom and I'm, you know, teaching math to students and things like that. But as I got more into Twitter and blogging and things like that, I'm finding that I'm talking to other people. I'm talking to other teachers. I'm talking to, I, I don't even know who sometimes. And it's just very interesting that, there goes the phone, okay. Um, it's, <laughs> you can't always control things. Um, you know, you just get the idea that uh, if you put information out there, you're not always, you're never sure exactly who's picking it up and who's using it. So I think that's what a network has to do: is you have to not be afraid to put ideas out to uh, to extend what you're you're saying and hope that somebody either benefits from it or picks up on it and extends it or, you know, things like that. So that's why I'm, I'm thinking, you know, more and more that it, it, there's a lot of students out there, but they're not necessarily uh, all ones that I know. Right. Um, has this kind of immersive environment made it easier for us to view ourselves as I've heard some people starting to use the phrase teacher learners, um, 
where we can so um, so obviously sort of see ourselves in a learning moment and allow our students to see us in learning moments. Has this made it easier to blur that line and which probably which I would I would argue is a helpful healthy thing. Has this made it easier for us to do so? Has it made it easier for you to, to be both teacher and learner at the same time, Tim? Yes, definitely. Uh, it, it, it's very blurred line because when I'm, even when I'm uh, working with uh, some groups and talking to them and, and uh, presenting them with information, they're also feeding me back new information, and uh, that's the best kind of teaching. I mean, if, if if I was to stand up and just lecture, I think I would bore myself as well as the people in front of me. Awesome. Um, I'm just posting at the top of the little chat here. If you're looking for a great book, it actually has nothing to do with digital, um, interestingly, because it's an old book. Um, but it's a wonderful book about bringing, uh, about bringing um, dialogue into the classroom. And, and it's by a woman named Patricia Stockton. The name of the book is A Dialogic Classroom, which is a really profound thing. Um, here's something I want to worry about. And it's something, um, by the way, I saw there was a, uh, Somebody asked, I want to do it before I type a new tack on it because I want to honor the questions that I see in here. Um, someone asked me what I thought of um, uh, open source education, which I think, uh, I, can't, I can't scroll back to find out who said it, but um, I think it's amazing. Um, and I think, I think there's a really fascinating thing happening on it, and I, and I kind of, I'm still really, as you guys probably can tell from this keynote, a lot of these things that I'm thinking about with connectivity and what have you, and sort of connectivity as a pedagogy in and of itself, maybe, um, are I'm really nascent in a lot of the things I'm thinking about um, and what this actually means. But as far as open sourcing education is concerned, I think it's amazing. I think it is exactly what we need to be doing. It is the kind of thing that, that only makes sense. It is the notion of open sourcing education is sort of break down that idea of teachers as priests of knowledge. Um, we have, you know, this, and, and it is a far more democratizing way to think about learning. And the beautiful thing is, is that we as educators play an incredible role, even in a, in a democratized learning environment. Um, and Karen, exactly, you know, it is not that it's stuff is free, it's that it's transparent and that we can learn from each other. And I think, you know, what, again, that sort of, and I know a lot of people have heard me say this before, in an open learning environment, in an open sourcing learning environment where, where teacher is not, um, curate, where teacher is not um, gatekeeper, but curator, where, where teacher is meaning maker, um, there is, uh, there's something amazing about that. And, and again, it goes back to this idea of what is our role in that environment? Our role is to help kids make sense of the world. Our role is to teach wisdom. Our role is to teach humility. Our role is to teach all of these other things um, as we make sense of all of those things. And I think that there's this fascinating thing right now, and I don't, again, I'm struggling with these ideas. I find it fascinating right now that on some very basic level there are folks out there trying to figure out how to, um, sort of shoehorn all learning, figure out how to, to take any and all learning that a child or a person might do and shoehorn it into school. And um, I, I don't know 
why we would do that. You know, this, the folks who are saying like, you know, we should create badges for anything kids learn and figure out how to make schools recognize that and da 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 da. And I think cool on one level, like okay, schools need to do a better job of of understanding all of the things that kids know and understand and learn outside of the school environment, and that's important. The flip side of that is trying to figure out why we think that schools can or should be the only place that a child would learn things. And if we are saying that what school needs to become is the sort of catch-all portfolio of where students can represent learning, okay, that's one argument. But the beautiful thing about open sourcing stuff is this idea that kids can learn anywhere. What they bring back to us when we are together, uh, I think it's profound. I think Holly, that's a great point. And for me, I, there's a very simple purpose for schools. Schools are where we come together. Um, schools are where the purpose of school is that there needs to be a reason we are in the space together. And that's what we built at SLA, right? SLA is this amazing thing. Like literally, I already had to say to you, I need to go, you know, I am literally, I've got several students who um, have chatted me on Facebook because my Facebook window is open um, asking me questions about stuff. It is August 1st, as we all know, but, you know, school, but I'm their principal no matter what time it is. Um, but, so, you know, so our notion or our belief of what the SLA community is is way beyond our walls. However, we also know that there is a purpose to being together. And when we are in that space together, um, we value and honor the fact that we should do something together. Oh, DG's PLN is a uh, personal uh, or professional thing, how you define it, uh, learning network. It is this idea of the network that you learn from every day. And I think that's another great thing. Uh, I'll go to man. Um, <laughs> avatar names fun. Uh, schools can be that sportive environment. They can be community in every sense of the world. They can be where we can take risks. They can be where we learn together. They can be where we build things together. They can be all of those things. And um, that's awesome. You know, there needs to be a reason we're in the same place at the same time. And I think that we can create that. And I think that when we understand that that is the purpose of school, um, it reinvigorates what we do together. And, you know, and again, this notion that we can be connected and learn all the time, well, awesome. And that brings me to one of the other points that I wanted to make, which is um, how many of us have um, taking these epiphanies we have had as teacher learners and created that space for our children as well. You know, now it, it is not enough to be a connected educator. If we have had these epiphanies, isn't it time and don't we have to um, create that space for kids? And this is a more challenging thing because we have you know, it, it is harder, I think, to create the space for kids where they can see social media not just as social, but as academic. How are we creating spaces for kids to be academically networked um, 
in our schools to not just their school community but beyond their school community. And we at SLA cheat ridiculously when it comes to that. We host a conference where we invite you all to show up. And not surprisingly, um, our students get to meet you all and then follow you guys on Twitter and take place in all of that. But how have we now, and again, I ask, I'm kind of throwing this one out to the wisdom of the crowd, what are some of the ways that you all have allowed or created or enabled students to um, create spaces for students to see themselves as public learners and to have PLNs of their own? Scott, you want to talk a little bit about what you've done with Class Connect? Again, when Chris says, do you want to talk about it, that means you can click on the talk button and actually talk about it. That is if you have a microphone and you're not shy about it. But I have given you all microphone privileges, so you are able to do that. Gotcha. So Scott does not have a mic, um, so we will just, as he, so we'll all just keep talking while he tells us about it in the chat room. Um, I think there are a lot of spaces. I think the stuff that Edmodo is doing, I think the stuff with Class Connect, I think there's a lot of people trying to figure out that space. What is interesting to me is this, and I think that here is the um, really hard thing. And, and I don't, again, I don't pretend to have, um, hopefully Scott is going to tell us all about Class Connect, Robin, because I don't know about Class Connect. So I'm interested to see that. Um, you know, students, much like us as educators, uh, live in multiple world, worlds at once, right? So if anybody, for example, follows me on Twitter, you know that um, a significant uh, portion of my tweets have absolutely nothing to do with school. Right, and as Durf says right away, um, I'm a huge sports fan and have been known to uh, live tweet many a Phillies game. Um, and so you have to be able to deal with the fact that there was an article in some magazine somewhere about how I'm a really great person to follow, but there you got your signal to noise ratio is really kind of annoying, um, for which I apologize. Kids are using social media in all of these different ways as well. One of the challenges we face at SLA where we follow each other on Twitter and follow each other on Facebook is um, dealing with, as adults, some of the... Uh, growing pains that kids have um, in their uses of social media and knowing that um, we can't become their filters, we can't be, we can't stop them from using, if, if them taking part in this world with us um, means that we stop them from using it authentically socially, then that's a bad thing. Um, Yet at the same time, when you see kids tweeting about who they think is hot, you're kind of cringing. Um, we're going to have to learn how to do that. We're going to have to learn, and I think it's not a bad thing. Um, we're going to have to learn how to see each other as whole people. And that's a scary thing sometimes. Um, but I think it's something we're going to have to do. Either that or we're going to have to continue to bifurcate our lives and bifurcate our spaces so that kids use one account or one tool when they're being academic and then another account or another tool 
when they are being social and never the twain shall meet. And that's better than not at all. But I do think we need to, um, when allowed, when kids let us be there, also not be afraid to interact with them as whole people as well. Um, and Tom, that's a great question. Tom asks, where can students go to build a PLN? And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to plug something that literally just launched. Um, and it's a group of students. Um, and I wanna, I'm going to have to check the URL really quickly because I want to make sure I get it right. Um, we were just talking about this at 140 EDU today. Um, and it's student voice. And it is a group of students who are, um, let me make sure I've got the right website. Um, darn it, this isn't it. Um, I'm going to have to find it. Or if somebody who is at 140 is there today, if you can put it in the chat room, that would be great because I literally just learned about this today. Um, and students are beginning to find that. There's also StuChat on, um, on Twitter um, or STChat. Um, where students are talking about this stuff. So they're beginning to create those spaces. It's taken them a little longer than to get there in academic ways, but there are ways that students are beginning to explore this space, beginning to work this stuff. Lisa Nielsen is an amazing person. She was the person who was, she was the adult who was moderating the panel of students today at 140. Um, and that's a really profound thing. Student 2.0 is another great one. Um, so I think that's all, I think, we need to help people find that. I'm trying to see if it's ST chat, student chat. Uh, Chris, somebody put in there stewvoice.org. Was that the one you were looking that's for? That's it. That is exactly the one that I was looking for. Um, thank you. And this is nascent. Um, I mean, it is brand, brand, brand new. They have just launched. And um, it's really, really interesting. Um, it is, Robin, I think, kind of looking more at high school and college kids, but I think um, the beautiful thing is, is I think we will see this and we will see this kind of thing beginning to happen. And I think if adults um, are supportive of it, that's a powerful thing. Now, um, there's another group that we need to talk about and we need to figure out how we're going to um, include in this space. And um, that's parents. Joe Mazza, again at 140 EDU today, talks about the fact that according to according to the work the to Twitter, the fastest growing age group on Twitter is 18 to 35 year olds. That means that our parents are now on Twitter. And I don't mean our personal parents, I mean our our students' parents are on Twitter. Um, that is the you know the 30 to 40 to 50 year old demographic, but that is certainly um, if you're an elementary school teacher, that is your demo. So as again, as we have become engaged in this world, and as we have dipped our feet in these water or drank from the fire hose, depending on how comfortable you are with it, um, it's time to help our parents do so as well. There is a Twitter chat, and it is hashtag #PTChat. And I believe they get together on Wednesdays. In fact, I know they do. Uh, Wednesdays at 9 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time. So um, you can start to get your parents involved in this. 
you can start to bring ways for teachers and parents and students to talk to one another, and I think that's really powerful. Um, David and then Steve. Um, David, we don't we have one dedicated teacher space that is <coughs> student free, and it's just a Moodle class that we have on our Moodle instance, and we have some tools that teachers can use to do stuff. And we also have uh, shared spaces and, and every single class at SLA is a blended class. Um, and then we also have some shared spaces that are fully community oriented. And we also have a Facebook page and we all follow each other on Twitter and blah, 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 blah. But we also do have a teacher only space for us to talk about, basically to extend our staff meetings and our workshops to anywhere, anytime. And that's really powerful. Um, and we're building a whole online repository so it's not just chat for us. We're actually we're building a whole online section of our website for teachers, um, for the adults I guess, to have access to all the resources and all of the stuff that we need. Um, Steve, your question, how do we communicate this stuff? You know, I, I think that's a great, great question. Um, and again, I go back to um, the 140 EDU talk that um, Joe gave today. And if you're not following Joe Mazza on Twitter, um, that's his. Uh, that's his uh, username, and screen, and uh, Twitter handle, and he's amazing. And you know, it's the simple stuff. I mean, sometimes we overlook the easy stuff. Uh, you know, just out of curiosity, um, you know, according to most of the data, you know, if you're lucky, you get 10% of your parent body at a home and school meeting or a parent, you know, a, uh, a parent meeting, you know, and I think that. You know, these days, why wouldn't a school, every time they had a home and school meeting, um, throw it up on Ustream? You know what I mean? Have a chat. Uh, if you're doing a, a workshop for teachers, if you're having a state of the school address, if you're doing all those things, throw it up there. And even if it only increases your percent, your percentage of parents who take part in it from 10% to 20 to 25%, that's a huge plus. Um, you know, the other thing is, is, are you running parent workshops? Are you teaching parents? You know, uh, are you continuing that conversation? You know, we've done stuff, you know, you asked about lawmakers, Steve. Um, we encourage our students to follow their lawmakers on Twitter and then chat at them. And if they happen to mention they go to Science Leadership Academy, when they do, all the better. Um, and then it's an amazing thing about helping our school. But I mean, Lawmakers, there are very few lawmakers who aren't, who don't have a digital presence anymore, right? I mean, most of the lawmakers these days, even if it's just a staffer who manages the Twitter feed or what have you, um, everybody gets that they need to engage in the digital community right now or digital citizenship. The sad thing is, is they're blocking kids in schools from doing so, right? I think every single one of us probably knows the stories of districts who are saying to their parents and their students, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, but then blocking those in our schools. So it's not like um, it's not like these folks aren't using it. It's not like districts. It's not like lawmakers. It's not like these folks aren't engaging in all of this stuff. They just aren't doing it with kids. So there's right exactly. They know they should have a digital presence, but they don't get the learning value. And yet, I guarantee you, we see that when we encourage our students to follow a councilman or a local state legislator on Twitter and interact with them and let them know I'm a I'm a high school sophomore and here's what you know and I've got some questions for you. 
the beautiful thing about all this stuff is how do we teach, you know, this gets us to the next point, which is, is there an implicit, um, is there an implicit pedagogy to this stuff? Is there a participant, is there, have we created a, um, a, a participatory pedagogy, for lack of a better word? And that's right, and you know, Steve, I love the word agency, right? Head, heart, hands, and voice is, is I think we are absolutely having to do. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people beginning to talk about the the, um, the blocking, and I'm lucky I work in the school district Philadelphia where they don't block Twitter, they do block Facebook, and they do block Instagram, um, but they don't block Twitter, so we're able to hold on to Twitter. Um, I can't decide if I think that, and I'm, again, I'm curious as to what people think. Um, I think that's a right now problem. Um, I think we're going to see that change. Uh, I think as, um, you know, as, you know, Kraft publishes their Twitter handle and QR codes on Ketchup, um, and these things just become part of the way we live our lives, I don't know that schools can, um, can hold off or school districts can hold off on doing it. I think here's an interesting thing, which is that one of the, the folks that we've got to get involved in this conversation are the lawyers and the policymakers. Um, you know, if Lisa Nielsen were in this chat room, she would tell me that it's particularly dire because uh, in places like New York City, um, they're completely trying to lock, lock away the idea of social media in schools, and yet again, they're on Twitter and Facebook themselves. Um, I feel like that is, um, that's only going to be a problem for a little while longer. Uh, one of the things that I believe about policy, and this is uh, maybe the next place to go with this stuff, um, is that policy as it stands, especially ed tech policy, is generally done in such a way that we are trying to um, ameliorate the worst abuses of the system, right? So that most policies in schools are done to make sure that that one teacher who's a pedophile in, out of the eight gazillion in your district can't use Facebook to connect with a student. Um, now, to me, there's a simple policy, which is that sexual contact between teachers and students is wrong in any arena, period. That's your policy. If your policy on social media is students and teachers should not connect on social media because, God forbid, something bad might happen somewhere, make the policy about the something bad, not about the tool. Um, what I would like us to see us doing, and what I think all of us who have been sort of exposed to this world need to start advocating for, is we need to start really taking a look at the policy world. And to me, the purpose of policy, yes, we need some policy to, pre to prevent the worst abuses. There's no question of that. But most policy should be to enable good people to do great things. And I'm smiling because David just um, came up with, you know, my favorite thing to see, which is one of the things I love to say is what's the worst consequence of your best idea? So, yes, when schools unblock Twitter, they need to say, or unblock Facebook. They need to say, what's, gonna, what's the bad thing that's going to happen? And the reason to do that is to not say, 
we're not going to do the good thing that we have happening, but rather to go through that iterative process of questioning and inquiry and, and problematizing and problem solving. It's a really easy thing. What's the worst thing that could happen if we unblocked Facebook and we allowed students and teachers to, to friend each other on Facebook? The worst thing is, unbelievably, is that students and teachers using Facebook, or teachers using Facebook, to have inappropriate and wrong relationships with kids. That is a real unintended consequence that could happen. How do you mitigate that? You teach teachers what it looks like. And the funny thing is, is that, number one, I will argue that the teacher who would have, um, yeah, Tim, that's the other worst thing. Um, and it's really not that kids waste a little time. It's, I, I have to admit, and I have to own this, um, when the school district of Philadelphia decided to block Facebook and I could no longer play Scrabble with my students during the school day, I got more productive. Um, I have to own that I was every bit as distracting to my students on Facebook as their friends were. Um, I am a bad person. Um, but um, so I would argue that the worst consequence, the really, the really inappropriate things that could happen, the, the, the sexual misconduct, what have you, we can deal with that problem with policy that is not about social media, but rather policy about the behavior. Any teacher, you know, found in a sexual relationship with in an inappropriate sexual relationship or in making inappropriate sexual comments towards children loses their job, period, end of story. That's a simple policy. The next question, how do you navigate the space, you know, and I think this is more of a challenge. When, you, when students and teachers follow each other on Facebook, we learn who we are in different ways. And that bunker mentality space, that ability that for teachers and students to um, interact outside the classroom and for teachers to fall into the teacher trap of thinking they are the one adult in the kid's life who can save them. Um, that to me is a, a greater danger that we don't talk about all that often and one that as, as a school that allows and encourages teachers and students to find one another on Facebook um, is a real problem and it's one that we've had to deal with on an educational level which is how do you prevent the bunker mentality? How do you promote healthy student-teacher interaction online? And how do you not allow it to become a thing where students are telling teachers things in confidence, um, what have you. But I think you do that the same way that you do that any other way, where you make sure that students can do that, you make sure teachers know. If kids tell you stuff, make sure that, that you know that they know that it's not in confidence and that you will always, that you're a mandatory reporter, that if you feel that the student is telling you things that could put them in jeopardy or in danger, they have to tell an administrator, blah, 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 all the rest of it. Yes. Localized transparency validated by that is a lovely way of talking about it. We need to stop thinking that bad things will happen if students and teachers learn that they are human together. Um, that is uh, just a smart thing. So I want to talk about one last concept here, and it is the hardest piece of this. Um, Clay Shirky in uh, Here Comes Everyone writes about how these tools are incredible for connecting, these tools are incredible for curating, and these tools are very hard to get to action. And we heard that 
for the last two days at 140 EDU. We've heard that for the last several Educons that, yay, we're all connected now and that's wonderful and maybe that is changing our personal practice in ways, but is that enough? If we are now all connected, how do we take that motion, that movement from connected to active? And how do we change not just our own personal practice, but in a moment in time where I think we could argue that at least in America, policy is taking us down the wrong path and instead perhaps look to the connected networks to take a stand and to move towards a better, more human, more connected, and more authentic education. I'm so glad that Deborah talked about this as well. I think that, I mean, she's a personal hero of mine. I'm embarrassed the idea that I would, you know, virtually share a stage. Um, it's interesting. At, uh, at 140 EDU today, um, uh, the college board, the senior vice president of communications at the college board came on. And he talked about how they are doing this thing called Don't Forget Ed, where they are trying to mobilize the social networks, Twitter and Facebook, to encourage students and teachers to demand that Obama and uh, Romney make education an issue in the, in, the, in, the, in the upcoming presidential election. And I was moderating, I was doing a Q&A with him. And I said to him, well, what's the goal? What, why just have them talk? Great to have them talk about it, but what's the goal? And he said, we don't have, we're agnostic on this, we don't really have a goal, we, you know, there's not one specific policy that we're pushing. Um, I agree with you, Steve, but, you know, we just want to, we think if they're talking about it, it's a good thing. And I said, hang on a moment. And they said, this is grassroots. And I said, wait a minute. And I said, College Board was in the room when Common Core was developed. College Board was in the room when, as states have looked at uh, the different high-stakes tests that they are doing it, that they are doing please explain to me how you can have a grassroots movement calling for a, just a discussion with no um, agenda when you're one of the people actually at the policy level. And you didn't have a great answer for that. So what I will say is this. I think the time has come for us to not count on College Board to move policy, but for all of us. Um, I think the time has come for us to figure out what, how connectivity, right, We've been talking about this for decades. The difference is, is that now, you know, or maybe the point is, um, if we're all connected, can we talk more quickly and actually do something? I'm sorry, John, what do you mean by Fed money and hoops? I don't know what that means. Oh, Fed. Got it. I think that's a, you know, I think, and you've seen some folks do that. I think, um, sorry, I was confused by the B. Um, I think that's a, you know, I think there's been, a, you've seen some municipalities that have done that. I know that in, uh, in Philadelphia, if we were to refuse federal money and we were to lose Title I money, we would be even more bankrupt than we are. That's not an option for some of our urban districts, sadly. Um, you know, how do we move to action? You know, is it, SOS, the Save Our Schools Movement, which if folks don't know about, is August 3rd through 5th in D.C. Um, and allow me to make a suggestion. One of the things that I've sort of 
been talking with a lot of people about lately is that we make an artificial divide a lot of times. We say students want one thing, parents want another thing, teachers want another thing, administrators want another thing, da 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 And yet, um, many, many, many teachers are parents. And I think we are missing out on some natural alliances. And I think if we can leverage these tools to begin to get teachers and parents and students talking together, um, we can do some amazing things. I think the time has come to leverage these tools to figure out how to organize in ways beyond the traditional educational organizations that have existed. It doesn't mean reject unions or it doesn't mean reject different, you know, traditional professional organizations, but I think the time has come to um, bring parents and students and teachers together and start to articulate a new vision and publish the hell out of that vision using these tools. And Steve, I'm so glad that you and Audrey are talking about that because I am convinced, I think you probably heard me say this, I am convinced that uh, the solution to many of the problems that plague us in education is pizza. So this is going to be my closing thought on connecting educators. And connect as number one, it is not enough to be connected educators. We must be connected citizens. And we must see ourselves as educators and learners and parents and neighbors and voters. And we are all of those things and we need to we need to cross boundaries to do that. That's one. Two is maybe we don't, you know, if if Steve and Audrey are finding a way to do this on Kickstarter, then I believe that they will be able to do that. But in the meantime, especially now, during Connected Educator Month, let us all, as we come back to school and we have back to school nights and we have all of these things, let's 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 change the game a little bit. Let's, as part of back to school, part of Connected Educator, part of whatever the beginning of the school year is. Let's bring together parents and students and teachers and let's ask them a simple question. What do we dream our schools to be? Let's do that. Let's stop assuming a deficit model. Let's stop having the conversation of how do we fix our schools and instead say what is our best hope and wishes for our schools to be. And let's document the snot out of that stuff. Let's write it down. Let's blog about it. Let's publish it. We've got the hashtag, it's CE12, and let's actually begin to articulate a better vision of schools that is connected, that is authentic, that is real, that represents the modern world in which we live, and that honors the lives of everyone in our schools, the students, the teachers, and even, God forbid, the principals. And let's begin to move this conversation from one that is um, so negative to one that articulates a positive vision that harnesses the goodwill and hard work of everyone, students, teachers, and parents who invest so much time and energy in our schools. That's my best idea on what it can mean to be a connected educator in the school year to, uh, 2012. Um, I hope all of you are enjoying the wrap of your summer and are gearing up for another amazing year. Steve, thank you so much for having me. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll be online, you know. If you don't follow me on Twitter, there I am. And uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation.
Thanks, Chris. Thanks for making the time. I know that uh, you've been busy. It's most appreciated. Great conversation, great ideas. My pleasure. And now, off to catch a train and go home. Okay. Thanks to Chris. Thanks, everybody, for being here for the great conversation. It has been recorded. You can also go up to File, Save, and you can save the chat. And within, uh, at least in, within the next hour, the link to the recording will be up on my blog post on Connected Educator Month and then on the main site by tomorrow. So I'll stop the recording now. Have a great day or night, depending on where you are. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.